Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And it's time for another geek out. Yeah. This well, is the third geek out in a, a few weeks. In a row, basically. But it was one of those things where I started down the geek out 2020 path of let's just do a few topics and we'll be a bit long. And then we were really, really, really long. So, right. Uh, and we did the two of them the one day, the the pandemic and uh, space one, right? But this the power one. You gave me a little more time. For, yeah, well, which is useful. I there was a couple of interesting tidbits to uh, to pull together. There's a lot of stuff in that brain of yours. It's a busy place, but you yeah. know, and literally, this is just all the notes I've been keeping all year. Anyway, from reading papers and and just staying abreast of technology. Yeah, just sorted into these three buckets. There's a bunch of other stuff that I didn't. I'm not going to do. But sure. um, but everybody's interested in the state of energy and and where it's right. going. You know, everybody. That, yeah. Back in 2017, I did that real state of energy show specifically at the request of a listener. This mm -hmm. is a variation on that theme. It's fascinating to see where we've come in five years yeah. since I did the 2017 version. I can't wait. All right. Well, before we get going with energy, let's uh, roll the framework music for a better known framework. <laughs> All right, man, what do you got? This is a, a blog post I came across. How often do people actually copy and paste from Stack Overflow? <laughs> well, because it's such a meme, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, now we know. Do we? Well, so <laughs> it says... April Fools may be over, but once we set up a system to react every time someone typed command C, that's Mac speak for control C. Right. We realized that there was also an opportunity to learn about how people use our site. And here's what we found. So they say there's a kernel of truth behind every joke. In the case of our recent April Fools gag, and if you follow the link there, it was introducing the key. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a, a fake, uh, you know, command C, command V, three keys that you USB put next yeah. to your keyboard. Right? It's hilarious. Yeah. So they say uh, in the case of our recent April Fool's gag, it might be more like an entire cob, a kernel of truth, an entire cob, perhaps a bushel of truth. We wanted to embrace a classic Stack Overflow meme and tweak one of our core principles. Our company was inspired by the founder's frustration with websites that kept answers to coding questions behind paywalls. What would the world look like if we suddenly decided to monetize the act of copying code from Stack Overflow? <laughs> okay, joke's over. Hope everyone had a good laugh and no one got too freaked out. But wait, there's more. Once we set up a system to react every time someone typed Command C, we realized there was also an opportunity to learn about how people use our site. We were able to catalog every copy command made on Stack Overflow over the course of two weeks. And here's what we found. Just two weeks? Yeah. Wow. Just two weeks. And so there's a, a nice graph. There's a bunch of graphs. Yeah. The, the copies per, I got fairly far down into this thing, got into the copies per post. Mm -hmm. It's just really interesting to see, you know, different stacks have different, you know, cut and paste rates without a doubt. Right. Um, they, a lot of the data analytics guys, the pandas and, and Python, MATLAB, 
Like, mm -hmm. yeah, they're, it, and that makes a lot of sense because often these are very specific algorithms, optimal ways to do a particular data analytic task. Hmm. Why would you tinker with that? Right. Bring it in, test it. Yeah, that's what you want it to do. Perfect. Makes total sense. Well, in two weeks, they had millions, 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 millions of control C's. Yeah. Crazy. Well, it's, absolute, it's absolutely a thing. It's not a joke. Nope, it's not a joke. So anyway, I thought that Love was it. really interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, who's talking to us, Richard? Hey, grabbed a comment off of show 1600. Remember 1600? So uh, long ago. Not really. We're staring <laughs> 1800 in the face, friend, right? Like this is... Oh, yeah, I know. You know, here we are at 1775, right? Like it's, it's upon us. 1600 was the superconductor geek out, which was oh, another yeah. one of those real hard mental exercises for me. Because um, superconductors are... A, I think what gener what made me do it, besides the fact that folks were asking about it, was that there had been some really great material science that had come out around superconductors. It sort of recognized the fact that superconductors are a state of matter. Superconducting is a state of matter. It's not a product per se. Hmm. And we've learned, and this only continued since we did this show a few years ago, where more and more we're finding you can make anything to a superconductor with enough um, cooling and pressure. This is literally, it is a structure or almost an allotrope of an, of material. Right. And what they call a superconductor is something that does that easily. Well. More easily than other things. Well, it, it, it's a state of matter. So yeah. It's a, it's a state that you get to that then has this, this very uh, efficient movement of electrons. And that's the the question or the comment from, uh, from Topper, uh, Kane, from three years ago, where he said, as always, I love the geek outs. Something that's always bothered me about superconductors that maybe you can clear up, are superconductors really resistance-free? Hmm. Or do they have a ridiculously small but measurable resistance? In other words, what would happen if one were to take my superconducting wire down to a couple of microns and try and shove the, shove the entire electrical output of a major generating plant through it? Ah. Which is a very twisted way to think, Topper. I'm, I'm, I, I like everything, everything <laughs> about what you're doing there. Sounds like a Hollywood movie. Yeah, but it, and it really is resistance-free in the sense that we have not been able to measure resistance, that the electron volts going in or the electron volts coming out. Interesting. Uh, and I actually responded to Topper at the time, but I wanted to bring it back up because we are going to talk a little superconductors today. Okay. Um, that uh, there is this principle in superconductors of what they call critical current, which is the point at which the density of the current, the amount of energy flowing through the wire and the uh, and the, the power therein is so great that the superconductor stops being a superconductor. Wow. Remembering that a superconductor is not a product. It right. is a state it's of a matter. State of matter. And so if you push enough energy into it, you will alter that state of matter. Mm -hmm. And as I said in a very mild way, things get dramatic after that. <laughs> so... For one of the largest superconductors that most people are aware of, or that you see on a routine basis, is the MRI, right? Magnetic resonant imaging devices. Mm -hmm. And part of an MRI installation is what's called a quench vent. So the, the event when you have that transformation from superconductor to not superconductor is considered a, a quenching event. And you suddenly have a massive amount of heat to deal with. And in the case of MRIs, they're typically cooled with liquid helium. And so what happens is the liquid helium stops being a liquid in a hurry, hmm. right? With vigor. 
And so it's going to carry the heat away from the magnetic coil, but you have to give room for that to escape. For A quench vent is actually a place to vent the liquid helium out as a gas to dissipate that heat uh, because you don't have a superconductor anymore. And typically after that, you really don't have an MRI machine anymore either. The, 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 the risks, the damage to the magnet are very high. You do need to recharge the, the, the liquid helium. All of that is expensive. So, you know, you be careful. Don't abuse your, your MRI. Uh, and that um, that is sort of the trade, right? Resistance. The, while you're within the bounds of the superconducting state, you do not have a problem with moving electrons very, very efficiently, moving energy efficiently. But okay. you have to stay within the limits of that. So yeah. you can't just keep making the wire smaller, right? The mass of the super of the superconducting material matters in, in terms of the amount of energy it can carry. Uh, so, Topper, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on Facebook because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. But is a tweet a product or a state of something? <laughs> what is a tweet, actually? Well, all we know for sure is some tweets really don't matter. I don't know if that is a statement. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> tweets matter. <laughs> do they? Do they really? We organize enough electrons in our life. Do we really need to organize more? All right. Well, uh, I'd like to apologize in advance for any snow plows you may hear coming down the street in back of me. Uh, we got snowed last night, as yep. did you, right? Mm, I got snowed yesterday. Today yesterday. It's, all, it's just been rain. Yeah, we're doing that wobble back and forth across the freezing line thing right now. So it's like how to make a city into a Slurpee. Right, that's where we are right now. Well, we're recording this a little bit late because they showed up to plow the driveway just as we were getting started. So, ah, don't worry. Uh, anyway, apologies in advance if you hear any heavy machinery, but we'll try to edit out as best we can. The floor is yours, Mr. Campbell. What are we talking about? Part of me, you know, I wobble on this about how much of this is discussing. Uh, we, I don't really want to get into the climate change story per se. That's a separate topic, and one of these days we'll address it uh -huh. with all the hubbub that's going to be around that. But the reality of the state of power in the world today is that there is a movement towards more renewable energy. There's sure. No, no two ways about that. In fact, there's an organization called IRENA, or for the International Renewable Energy Agency, and it's an intergovernmental organization yeah. that 180 countries have signed up to out of 200-something, like 202. So not bad. Like most com companies, uh, most countries are involved in IRENA. And the... Uh, you know they're the ones that are doing the overview of of energy of energy and re and move towards renewables and they make the point that if we could actually get carbon production out of energy generation that's like 90% of the carbon reduction goals that have been set by the paris accords a related question did you see shatner in space yeah is that a is that a related question? Yeah, it is because in I watched that it's a documentary that Amazon made, obviously because right. Jeff Bezos was the one that put him up there. Sure, I was expecting, you know, um, some Amazon kind of uh, what's the word I want propaganda, right? You know, just to, you know, because here's a platform for Jeff Bezos to speak to the world about how awesome he is, right? And one of the things that came through in that documentary where they sent William Shatner up to space was that uh, Jeff Bezos wants to 
do things in space that pollute the earth down here. So his grand vision is to, you know, start manufacturing things in space, start doing things that pollute. Like he made it a climate kind of yeah that's been the pitch for blue origin all along right is that blue origin yeah yeah and and that's where when i did the the solar power space-based solar power show it was like this is what blue origin's been talking about right now if only he could build that darn rocket engine right like yeah and and i i've kind of known that but it it just kind of hit me in the face you know with yeah. shatner's dramatic ability to make that uh whatever so i don't i don't know if that's propaganda or if it's real uh, well i mean space-based po power was its own show for a reason yeah there there are a number of organizations that are talking about it but it's not it is zero percent of the power generation of the planet right now sure yeah yeah and it's I, a it's a long-term goal yeah and it, and it has some possibilities also in the space in the, in the context of building space infrastructure because mm. the moment you have a gigawatt of power in orbit around the Earth. You could aim it at a lot of things. Yeah, that's not true. just at the ground to generate to, to provide power to people's homes. You could aim it at a spacecraft. Hmm. You know, every to make a spaceship move, you need a power source and an engine and fuel of some kind. And it, it would also make a very convenient weapon. Well, everything can, hmm. right? A car makes a weapon. Well, a rock makes a weapon. A stick <laughs> makes a weapon. Touche, Mr. Campbell. Right? There, it, it's always true that it, it, the reality is, what do you do with it? The idea that you could externalize a power plant for a spacecraft, right? And, yeah. and then push the spacecraft around. It only has to carry its engine and its fuel. It doesn't have to carry its power plant anymore. Right. That's interesting. Yep. So okay. it, it's an, another aspect. I, I didn't mean to derail you, but... No, no, no. Totally with you. Okay. Last time we were doing this, I did it a little bit in 2020, but 2017, of course, was the sort of when I really went over this all in detail. We talked about this idea of this levelized cost of energy, LCOE. And there's an organization uh, adjacent to IRENA, but uh, sort of older. It's called Lazard. And they, they're, the, they're the folks that gather all the data from around the world about what it's costing to make energy in the, in, in the modern era mm -hmm. today. Uh, and so what levelized cost of energy really is, is how do you compare different energy sources? So different kinds of power plants and the, and the total cost, what does it cost to build it? What does it cost to operate it? What does it cost to tear it down based on how long it lasts? You know, typically we're talking about getting 25 years out of solar panels, although we haven't run modern solar panels that long yet. So we don't really know, right? We have older style solar panels that have lasted even longer than that. Um, we've seen the same thing with like, and th that 25 to 30 year mark seems to be pretty common for a lot of power plants like natural gas and so forth, where you see coal power plants lasting longer, you know, 50 years. Mm. And so taking in a account all of those aspects, you, you try and build up this sort of standardized pricing, um, for power. And it's a way to measure in some ways the progress of these different technologies. And th what's been true for a few years now is that that solar became the least expensive power source, less expensive than coal. Well, um, isn't it subsidized more? Well, even when not subsidized, this is taking oh. the subsidies out. Okay. Right. And LCOE takes the subsidies out as well, although they do talk about the subsidized prices also. Okay. Uh, but a big thing that's happened over the past couple of years is that wind's gotten cheaper than solar. Huh. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. it's mostly 
um, the the offshore stuff. Right. But uh, the cost of fuel for most power plants has gone up, whether it's coal or it's nuclear or it's na even natural gas, which is the cheapest, but is still not that cheap. Hmm. Um, the uh, your unsubsidized analysis, you, you, your gas peaker plants these days. Well, peaker plants are special because they're only run at peak times. They call it a, is that is that what a peaker plant is? A peaker plant is yeah. When I need to provide peak power, right in that one or two hours where the where my community consumes the most electricity, mm -hmm. gas peaker plants are set up to power up, run those two hours, and shut back down again. Hmm. And so their LCOE tends to be pretty high, but because they're on demand power, they're very valuable, mm -hmm. right? Where your most efficient kinds of natural gas power, the gas combined cycles. They're right down there, you know. So a bigger plant comes in 150, almost up to 200 dollars per megawatt hour generated, compared to natural gas run at its most efficient form, the combined cycle models, which are now like down to 45 dollars to mm. to maybe 70 dollars hmm. uh, per megawatt hour, which is really good. Like, there's a reason why where places have lots of natural gas, they build combined cycle power plants they're very efficient and relatively low carbon emitting for carbon emitting plants yeah uh but wind this year came down offshore wind came down in like 26 dollars per megawatt hour whoa so now those there's a bunch of reasons for that and we can dig into that but it is and where solar is still you know utility scale solar is 30 dollars, which is again very very cheap i would point out that residential power plants so the the whole micro grid idea and like having power on your own home and so forth which i really like and it makes a lot of sense and people yeah. like control over that yeah they're expensive in comparison the lcoe of residential rooftop solar is like 150 dollars per megawatt hour wow because you never have a megawatt of it for starters right you have yeah. a few kilowatts you don't need that much power right, right. and so it's expensive but yeah. it's by unit cost is relatively small you're spending 20 30 50 thousand dollars on your home you should be able to earn that out and reduce power costs over 50 to 20 years. Right. So it ultimately pays for itself. And it's tricky to measure this sort of residential scale stuff against utility scale. You know, when you talk about utility scale solar panels, you're talking about acres and acres and acres of panels mounted as efficiently as possible. And solar panels have gotten incredibly cheap. But you said the, the cost for wind is now below solar? Is actually lower than solar, which wow. is interesting. It is because it's mechanically more complicated, right? right? I mean, solar is a very unique source of power. Solar, photovoltaic solar, because we also have thermal solar where we aim mirrors and heat and right. heat um, molten salts up and, and use that to generate power. Yep. But photoelectric effect, the, po the photovoltaic solar is basically made much the same way that we make uh, CPU chips, right? Uh, integrated mm. circuits, right? It is layers of silicon. It didn't start out that way. The earlier solar panels uh, were germanium and a bunch of other materials. But we got so mature at building silicon stuff to make iPhones and the like yeah. that we know how to work with silicon crystals better than almost anything. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of modern solar panels, those very inexpensive utility-scale panels, they are almost entirely silicon, doped the same way that we make integrated circuits, where we add a little boron on one layer, we add a little phosphorus on another layer, and that difference in the structures of the semiconductors, when you shine light through it, generates electricity. Magic. Yeah. But it, it's not that efficient. Silicon, realistically, uh, it, from, a, from a 
chemical materials perspective can get up to about 30% efficient. So right. the sun uh, puts about a kilowatt per square meter of energy out uh, on the earth after uh, atmospheric degradation. But on a clear day, on the equator, at noon, you can get up, there's about a kilowatt per meter landing on the ground. Per day? Uh, no, per hour, right? Oh, per hour? Yeah. Kilowatt per meter per hour. Wow. Per meter per hour. Um, ideal conditions. It's 1,300 if you get out of the atmosphere. So if you had a 100% efficiency... You'd get a kilowatt per meter. And you don't. Yeah, of course. Your silicon, silicon panels run about 21 to 22% efficiency. Right. The theoretical maximum architecturally is 30. You'll never get there because you have to actually manufacture these things. Okay. And so you see this roughly... 200 watts per meter is kind of the is per square meter is what you're going to get. And of course, that's the optimal. You'll get less than that. Right. Because solar angles, uh, you know, ideal Weather, light, overheating right. and so forth. And so, uh, but the advantage of these solar panels is we're extremely good at making them. We're cranking them out super cheap. They have no consumables. Um, they do degrade over time. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and the you know over the uh, over years they they do lose efficiency over time, and eventually you'll want to replace them. Yep. Um, but there's been a lot of effort to say, aren't there better materials? Like, isn't there better ways to make it? I'd also point out that the processing to make silicon panels, just like making chips, is a relatively dirty process, right? Environmentally. Yeah. Now you think about the number of CPUs we put on a single. 500 millimeter wafer, uh, that the typical format for modern CPUs, it, we don't need to make a lot of them. But when you're making acres of solar panels, the emissions from making those panels become more relevant. Yeah. There are a lot more silicon involved in making solar panels than are even made, made making chips. And we make billions of chips. Yeah. And so there is an ongoing effort to make better solar panels. And so the current future of solar panels, where a lot of effort's gone in the past few years, has been in perovskite uh, materials. So these are not silicon; they are uh, there's oxide crystals, and so they are they look to be more efficient. They're easier to manufacture. They're less environmentally impacting. They require less energy to make. They are often hybridized with silicon as well. Mm-hmm. The, when you see in the news the sort of flexible solar panels, that sort of thing. That's perovskites. Okay. That's these new styles. Silicon is a rigid material and it has to be a certain thickness to work correctly. And so that's where you get the panels. Um, You're you're even seeing some folks look at spray-based manufacturing techniques. Huh, wow. And as it dries, it forms into the crystals necessary. So where... We see the cost of silicon solar panels running, you know, four to ten U.S. dollars per square foot. Um, some of these spray techniques would be twenty-five cents a square foot. Jeez. So, re- I mean, you talk about you want to reduce the price of power. Uh, solar is already cheap, but these new techniques can make it even cheaper. Um, the downside is durability. Yeah. So we have confidence that we can make silicon panels that last twenty to thirty years. Um, and, uh, and most manufacturers silicon panels today, come on 25 year warranties, they'll replace them if they're defective, but then Paris guys just don't have that information. We don't know yet. So there's a lot of folks pushing on, you know, we need to get more efficient and they're talking about, you know, the high twenties of efficiencies out of Paris guys, which would make a huge difference. 
but it's just a question of whether they stay durable enough and efficient and, and, and last long enough to uh, to be able to do all these things. Yeah, okay. So, the, I mean, that's how solar's progressed. The, the, the price tag is starting to flatten out. We can't get much cheaper. So now there's a question of changing materials and so forth. In some ways, competing against the existing uh, solar panel is the, is the hardest thing for new solar panels to do because they, they we've just got since the Chinese started manufacturing those silicon panels at the massive scale the, is, that's what drove the price down mm -hmm. and uh, it's just it's going to be hard to get better so it's not like we're making the best panels we could make but we've except in the context of we've made it the cheapest panels we can make okay so let's go on to wind yeah so these are the so the two classic renewable energies. 2020, we had about 93 gigawatts of wind power installed around the world, uh, or new, new installed. So that's uh, we're now up to a total capacity of approaching 750 gigawatts of power being generated in the world. Now that's that's capacity. Okay, you know it's megawatt hours that you can consume, and it's you know much more than that. It's like in any given hour you could make 743 gigawatts with wind if it's all blowing well. The the top uh, wind power generators on the planet are China and the United States. So that's and, not manufacturers, that's generators. So yeah, the, this is yeah. China has more wind. China and the United States have more windmills than other countries. Yeah, they're and they're adding more. We, you know, the, this this we added ninety three gigawatts more in in twenty twenty. We're looking to add about ninety in twenty twenty one, maybe eighty eight. So this seems to be the consistent rate right now of adding that much power year over year with wind power. Um, if you're looking at the Paris Accords and what it would take to get rid of all the carbon generating power plants, you need to add twice that in wind to keep up. They want you know, they, their estimates. This is Irina's numbers would say put in 180 gigawatts a year. So we're behind in that sense, but it is growing rapidly. Um, the least, as I said earlier, that we were sort of the intro part of this um, offshore wind. So most wind is still onshore. Right stuff. It's on the lands. The ones you can see, um, people don't like them. They're noisy. All of this is true. Um, the bird thing is kind of a red herring. Like lots of people complain that it, it, that wind turbines kill birds, and it's true. The current estimate is that that about five hundred thousand birds are killed a year by wind turbines. Yeah. If you ever see a video of it, it's pretty gruesome, especially when it's a bigger bird. Uh, I would point out that domesticated cats kill two and a half billion birds a year. Mm -hmm. You just don't see it because they eat them. Yeah, <laughs> but right. Um, so, it, and, and the current estimate is over a billion die of colliding with windows. And it, not that I'm keen for birds to die, but if you're going to put energy into saving birds, keeping your cat inside. Yeah. <laughs> is, and marking your windows and making them so the birds don't crash into them will make a bigger difference. Don't eat chicken. Well, just saying. Those are birds we breed for food. We're talking about flying birds, and chickens are many things. Flying is not one of them. Boy, you have no sense of humor today, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If you want to talk about humor and chickens, you say, thaw the bird. Yeah. Right? Remember that one? Yeah. With the airplane, with the with the, with the resistant thing. <laughs> Fire the bird at the Goes right through everything. And they're like, wow, what do we do? It's like thaw the bird. Thaw the bird. So people don't like onshore wind, right? I want to um, take just a minute to let you know that there is a project in New London at the State Pier, uh, a wind farm project. Oh, yeah. And I'm looking at an article from August. Yeah, I'm friends with the mayor, and uh, he's, he's a 
you know, pushing it. And uh, so in August, uh, we got one of the final two permits needed to complete the planned $235 million redevelopment of the state pier into a hub for offshore wind projects. Cool. Yeah. Because we, offshore wind only works. This is a place for the power to land, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, we're not, I think we've sort of run the gamut on onshore. There's still things we can improve and certainly more modern plants like turbine technology continues to improve. The things yeah. that have, I mean, offshore is out of sight, out of mind, especially when you get far enough out, there's far fewer birds. So that's less of an issue. People don't really hear it, but they also can get dramatically bigger. Mm. You can only want, you only want to get so big on land just because these things get massive. So, you know, the, the current sort of state of the art for, for wind turbines right now is one of the Vestas offshore units, which was been on sale since the end of 2019. It's nine and a half megawatts, one turbine, one yeah. wingspan, wow. you know, the blade spans bigger than a 747, right? You know, a megawatt of solar takes about four acres of land. One megawatt. Yeah. One of these turbines is nine. Yeah. And GE's got prototypes now that are coming in like 12 to 15 megawatts. These are absolutely massive machines. And they actually, the the analysis from the Department of Energy around this says bigger is better with wind turbines. Sure is. When they get this large, they'll run on lower amounts of wind. They're tolerant right. to larger amounts of wind. Um, they have more momentum. Yeah. And the, and the fewer turbines you have, the less maintenance you have to do. So, right. The challenge is where can you put them offshore? Yeah, there's a, a definitely pushback from residents with ocean views. Yeah, that don't want to see wind. People mills. don't want to look at them, and it's easier to build these mills in shallower water, yeah. right? Where you're literally just putting concrete down. If it's on less than fifty meters of water, around one hundred fifty feet of water, you literally just bore into. You bring a ship, you bore into the bottom. You pour concrete through the cylinder and you make your mount. It's fixed, right? Monopile is sort of the standard way to build. There's a bunch of other options, but, you know, monopile is pretty common. If I lived on directly on the coast, and I don't, I have uh, I have water views, but I can't see, you know, the sound, let's say. Uh, I would welcome that because it's something to be proud of. I want to see boats. I want to see lighthouses. Yeah. And you know what? Windmills are in that category. Are part of it. I'm with you. I feel the same way. Like lots of folks talking about solar. They want their solar roofs where they don't look like solar panels. And in some ways, it's like yeah. seeing your solar panels not a bad thing either. They're not horrible to no. look at. And it is sort no. of a statement of I'm trying to reduce my right. footprint, right? But you can go further offshore. You know, the, the offshore oil industry has developed technologies for drilling right. deeper and deeper. And that same technology is going to be applied to building offshore uh, wind farms. Right. Uh, even to the point of putting together concrete mounts that have multiple turbines mounted on a multiple blades. So big pieces of concrete that are floated and anchored in place. And, you know, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever thought of this because it sounds a little sacrilegious, but what about making multi-use platforms? You know, so you have these deep sea platforms that are used for drilling for oil those same platforms could be used for windmills at the same time. Yeah, I mean, the these gigantic mills, the wind turbines are so massive, you'd only be able to fit one on a platform. Like the platforms yeah, are okay. only so big, but but the techniques are, are very similar. And so it's easy, 
we do have our ability to do this. It just costs more. Uh, right. And you, the other problem is that now the power starts to get far away from its where it's going to be consumed. So now you're talking about not only building an array of turbines that are that are floated and anchored in place, and they have to keep, stay far enough apart from each other. Right. Then you need a substation out there as well. You have to bring the, the the power comes off the turbine at a certain frequency. It has to be stepped up for transmission because you're now transmitting many kilometers. Well, there's nothing wrong with building windmills on land either. Uh, you know, you could do that in, in coastal areas. In fact, I know there's a windmill uh, right on I-95 if you're going between Connecticut and Massachusetts, somewhere in Rhode Island there, Warwick area. Yeah, so the point here is that we're getting to a place where we can build offshore wind turbines bigger than what you build on land, out of view mm. of anyone, where you have mm. more stable winds than on-land winds, so they'll generate power mm -hmm. longer, but it does introduce complexity. You do have to transmit the power back. Uh, but they are now showing this to be the lowest cost power generation system uh, available, even cheaper than solar. That is awesome. Uh I'm I'm running down the gambit. I'm not going to talk a whole lot about hydropower. Hydropower is very much out of fashion. Uh, in you know, with, there's some few experimentals, but it's it's got a lot to do with the environment you're in and what environments you're willing to change. There are more dams being disassembled these days than assembled. I was going to say that I, I have a tributary running through the back of my house. Technically, I own it, but because it is a wetland, yeah, there are rules of things that I can and can't do. If I was to dam that up and try to make a little hydro thing. Yeah, you kind of need a permit for that, brother. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. You got to get a permit. And I, I'm sure that, you know, first of all, your neighbors have to approve it. And I'm sure no, no, no neighbor of mine is going to approve any kind of messing with the water. You're in New England. Yeah. Let's talk about geothermal. Okay. Um, it's... It's not a big deal overall. Like I, I'm not talking about space-based power because it's zero percent of power generation. Geothermal is like right. a quarter of a percent of power generation to the planet. And really, you kind of got to look at geothermal like assisting, not replacing. You're not going to run. You're not going to get rid of your furnace or your air conditioner. Well, you're, now you're talking about geothermal for heating in your house. I'm talking about geothermal for electricity, oh. where we bore a hole two or three kilometers down. So we hit, you know, 200 degrees Celsius uh, underground. You fire water down there. It flashes the steam. It comes back up another pipe and you spin a turbine with it. Yeah, we did talk about that before. Yep. No emissions. Uh, continue. Right. It's base load power. It'll run 24 hours a day. The planet is always warm. Right. They, there's just a few problems with it, right? I mean, one of the problems is that you you are doing, the cost is in the drilling. Yeah. Right, the deeper you have to go, the more expensive it gets. Generally speaking, geothermal power plants only want to drill down about two kilometers, not much for two to three kilometers. After that, things get really expensive, and that is deeper than you would need for a turbine, let's say for what for wind turbine. Well, yeah, wind turbine you're drill drilling down a few meters, right? You're not trying to you're not trying to get to heat. You're just trying to get yeah. stability, right? We're talking yeah. about drilling down it needs kilometers. To be said. Yeah, and so. The, the But the bigger issue here is after you've drilled and found enough heat, and you won't necessarily find it, right? This is very much like oil exploration. You have to find a pocket of ground hot enough, shallow enough for it to make sense. Yeah. Now you have to start pumping water down there and getting it to flash back up as steam. And that sometimes causes microquakes. And sometimes the water doesn't come Oops. back. Right? Where's so it going? 
We well, so imagine you spent all this money to drill these boreholes to find a hotbed to be able to generate electricity from it, and then there's a little earthquake and it goes away. Yeah. And so the problem with geothermal is that um, the cost, because of these uncertainties, is is three to six thousand dollars a kilowatt to to develop, as opposed to seventeen hundred to twenty one hundred for wind and solar. Right. It's it's just expensive, and so it's hard to get funding Risky. for it. Just because it's risky, but it is base power. So, I mean, it has some advantages there. The United States government recently passed some infrastructure bills, and they have allocated money to uh, developing more geothermal in the U.S., who's one of the largest geothermal producers in the world, hmm. um, mostly across the western states where they where you have that band of volcanoes. You have hot right. ground, relatively shallow. And so what one of the things that the... Department of Energy is experimenting with is efficient drilling methods up to seven kilometers, so much deeper. And this comes from the maturation, again, of the oil industry with their right. fracking techniques and things like that, the fracking ability to drilling. do more sophisticated drilling. They want to leverage that uh, knowledge to do geothermal drilling. There's also a move towards using old oil wells, like old drill sites. They're already hmm. into ground that's that hot. And so yeah. now that you're no longer, there's no more oil to pump from that, let's start using it as a geothermal plant. Interesting. So, you know, there's a bunch of areas here that can expand all this. Um, there is modern geothermal being built today. In fact, in November of 2021, uh, a 4.2 megawatt plant came online in Taiwan, in Yilan County, which is in the northeast mm. of Taiwan. And it's important to remember that Taiwan's on the ring of fire. Yeah. All right. Uh, it, like Japan and so forth. They're all in that earthquake zone. So there's these hot, shallow areas. In fact, they only drilled down two kilometers um, for, the, for the Xinhua plant. 4.2 megawatts is not a lot of power, right? You typically talk about a modern power plant, it's three to four, 300 or 400 megawatt turbines. So four megawatts is little. You're talking about enough power for 7,000 homes. Mm. But it only costs $27 million to develop, US dollars. That's cheap, Right. And if you say so, then, you know, to generate power for 7,000 homes for 20, 30 years for $27 million, you know, that's what. Yeah. Yeah. When you put it that way. Yeah. And the government agreed. This is, a, by the way, a privately owned power plant. So this is a com totally wow. commercial power plant. Part of the agreement to develop it, the government guaranteed to buy power from the company for 20 years at a fixed rate of 19 cents per kilowatt hour, wow. which is a little pricey depending on where you live. You know, the average price of power in the United States is about 10 cents a kilowatt hour. So this is almost double that. Although if you're in Hawaii, it's 30 cents a kilowatt hour or more because Hawaii lives on diesel power plants, right? They don't have a lot of the native power. Although you'd think they'd be doing geothermal there with all the flipping volcanoes. Yeah, you'd think. Um, cheap power in the United States, by the way, would be Louisiana. Coal? Um, mostly natural gas. You know, Louisiana okay. is the processing point for an awful lot of uh oil and coal and gas and so forth. And so about 50% of the power in Louisiana is made by natural gas power plants. 25% coal, 25% nuclear. They have two nuclear power plants. Mm. Um, seven cents a kilowatt hour on average for, for Louisiana. Wow. So it's an interesting mix. But it, I, mean, I'm, I, I want geothermal to be better. Uh, it's mostly a secrets problem. The folks that develop the really clever drilling techniques and understand the subsurface materials, that mostly from the oil industry... They consider that all proprietary knowledge, not willing to share. 
And so there's pressure from the Department of Energy to get that information in the hands of more geothermal folks and to start to utilize old drill sites for geothermal power uh, because it's got so well, much it upside. Makes sense. It's easy power to make uh, uh, as long as you can keep the underground part working well. Mm -hmm. So when you've already spent the money to drill the holes, why wouldn't you use them? Why? Why? Why wouldn't you? Why don't we uh, take a break for this very important message? Sounds good. Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Then we're back. It's .NET Rocks. It's our third geek out of 2021, even though it's 2022. Don't get complicated with me now. This is the energy <laughs> geek out. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to talk a little more baseload power. Let's talk uh, small modular nuclear. Sure. I'm, I mean, I knew we were inching towards nuclear. And uh, the last time we talked about it, this is was the most exciting thing, you know, that you could have like a a small personal size or neighborhood size nuclear power plant that could be safe. So the problem with nuclear power, um, the traditional light water reactor, is that it's big enough that it won't cool down its own, although we've made more advanced reactors that don't have those problems. Right. Uh, it we in, in the United States, at least, they've stopped reprocessing fuel since the 70s because fuel is so cheap and reprocessing got expensive. Yeah. Um, so they've got a lot of cores laying around. There's unnecessary amounts of waste. Other places like France, who makes almost all of their energy from nuclear power, does reprocess their, point, their, their cores. Mm. They don't have the same levels of problems. But the real issue with, with those style of power plants is that they are all bespoke. Every one of them is unique. They are built on site. They have to be certified on site, and it makes them extremely expensive. But we were also talking about thorium and molten salt. Those and those are other reactor designs that need to be matured. Uh, yeah. And there's some experiments in that area. The whole point with small modular reactors is the, the is that they're built in a factory. They're certified in the factory. They the certification process happens once, and you build bunches of them. So rather than building, uh, you know, if you look at the um, the new scale concept, which is a, an American design, that's a 60 megawatt pressurized water reactor. So still mm -hmm. using the same basic approach as the big reactors, but it's just smaller. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, for starters, it cools down very safely. Like they they call them walk away safe, where it'll shut itself down. Uh, they still need refueling, but the refueling process is a little simpler uh, because things are not so big. Um, New Scale was is a, from the U.S. perspective is the most advanced project in the United States right now. Uh, they they had they were part of this thing called the Western Initiative for Nuclear, which was building plants in Idaho and Utah and so forth. There were thirty six different power companies that got involved. This is a couple of years ago. 
But as the certification process went on and sort of the details came out, the price started to creep up enough that power companies have started to drop out now where, for better or worse, solar and wind are cheaper, yeah. right? And natural gas uh, um, for baseload plants. And so the new scale is still in operation, still in the licensing phase, trying to get their sites, but they've been pushing out their first plant to 2030, which is far enough out. It's like, I read that as we don't know. Like, yeah, maybe someday. Although apparently they're making a deal just late, late at the end of 2021. They apparently Romania would like a couple of their plants. And now they're talking about building plants in Romania. Okay. Uh, there, the other thing that's happening in, in small modular, which I find really interesting is, uh, they are expanding with other fuel types as well. And if, the problem is when you look at the landscape of small nukes, you have all these different states of development. So they talk about conceptual design versus detailed design versus licensed. So actually going through the certification process versus under construction versus actually operating. Yeah. Right. So uh, recently, and folks sent me these, like uh, uh, these news stories, Rolls-Royce in the UK said, hey, we're going to build small nuclear in, in the UK. That's a conceptual design. Right. They, right. they had a, they've raised a bit of money. They've submitted, uh, they, they've submitted to do a detailed design process. They're talking about having a plan to go running in 2030, which like new scale to me says someday does, there's no way it's going to be 2030. Exactly. Yeah. Um, a more detailed design, more mature development is a general electric and Hitachi. So that's the United States and Japan and with their S prism design. This is a this is a reactor concept. They've gotten uh, to the detailed design phase. It's actually what they call a sodium cooled fast breeder reactor. It sounds very cool because it burns nuclear waste. The downside to this is that um, it's part of this group of fast breeder reactor concepts developed by Argon going back to the '60s, um, where they it's just a very different way of 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 causing fission to react, and so. The Department of Energy has been very keen about this because it's a chance to take all that old fuel and turn it into more energy and get rid of the waste in the process. Yeah. And so they had this uh, they they had this uh, group of projects they called the Versatile Test Reactor Program. And there were all these fast breeder reactor concepts, which the problem with fast breeder reactors is they're hazardous. Like they're it's tough to keep them running reliably. Right. And so for the most part, this whole group was shut down uh, by the end of 2021. They're starting over again. So it's not really gone anywhere. In Canada, there's a small modular reactor being developed uh, called the Canadian SMR. This is in Ontario, which is where most nuclear power for Canada is. Uh, it's an experimental reactor. It's in licensing review right now. So they've gotten through the detail stage and they're now working with the government to get licensed. Mm -hmm. They're going to use triso fuel. So uh, this is tristructural isotropic fuel, pebble bed fuel. All right. So you, instead of instead of rods... You're now having these spheres. They're about tennis ball size, uh, layers of carbon and and, uh, and uranium. Yeah, I remember we did a geek out. Yeah, we talked a bit about it. It was pebble, one of the reactor reactors. They, yep. What's cool about Triso fuel is that as it starts to overheat, it expands and cools itself down. So it's sort mm. of a steady state uh, fuel. It runs at a higher temperature, so you can use more efficient um, moderators. Uh, they're only talking about building a 15 megawatt sort of experimental reactor at this point. So still years away. They want to be operating by 2026, which is at least more optimistic than 2030, but it's further off. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of molten salt reactors, let's talk about China. 
Okay. China uh, started doing test runs for a two megawatt thermal molten salt reactor. So a small test reactor. Wow. In Gansu. But that's cool though. Yeah. Especially if you can manufacture them. In September. Wow. So uh, the news is very limited. It's challenging to deal with anything with China just because they're as secretive as they are. So we don't know how much of this is real. Uh, but they, there are other scientists that have been involved who said, yeah, no, there's something running there. Two megawatt thermal is smaller than even the Oak Ridge experimental molten salt reactor, which was a five megawatt reactor back in the 60s. So it's very small, but they are doing test runs. But I think the biggest news, again, comes out of China for a small modular, which is that uh, they have a fourth generation passive shutdown pebble bed reactor uh, running in Shindao Bay. Uh, it's a 200 megawatt reactor. Like that's, uh, it's it's two reactors running a single 200 megawatt turbine. So that's like real power. It's also a pebble bed. So it's a triso fuel. Right. Using helium as the, as the thermal conductor. Yeah. So they're superheating helium. It runs at very high temperatures and then spinning tur- that 200 megawatt turbine with that. I was very excited when we first uh, did the geek out on this particular design. Yeah. Because it's safe. Well, it has some possibilities. The biggest problem that we have, we've ever had with Pebble Bed is you still have to rotate the fuel. Yeah. Now, because they're spheres, you should be able to roll them around. Yeah. It's weird to think about radioactive materials you roll around. Like, that's a weird bowling ball. Mm. But <laughs> um, the process of moving them rubs them and creates uh, radioactive dust. Yeah. And that's really the issue is dust management with Pebble Beds. Okay. So uh, it, it'd be interesting to see how they're dealing with that process. Uh, Shindao Bay, by the way, is in the Shandong province, which is way up in the north of of, uh, of China, in the northeast corner, close to the close to the uh, um, the Yellow Sea. I also remember, and maybe this wasn't the technology, but I remember something about the 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 fuel just can be used and used and used and used until it physically just disintegrates. Well, that's molten salts. Molten salts are great for that because okay. the big thing with molten salt reactors is because you're dealing with these high temperature salts, um, you can separate them and reprocess them as they're pumping through the reactor. Yeah. So where solid fuels, even the triso fuels, you have to take them out and reprocess them. You have to cool them down, dismantle them, and 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 reprocess them. In molten salts, the reprocessing can be part of the overall reactor cycle. That's so cool. And so the the biggest thing is that as soon as whenever you have a solid, you have to deal with the damage that happens to the solids in the fission process. Like we transmute fuels and we do this. You take your uranium atom and you slam a neutron into it. The majority of the time it's going to split into into iodine and cesium. Right? Which is fine. You literally made a new element, new elements out of another element. It's crazy to think about, but that's what's going on. But sometimes it makes xenon and krypton. It makes gases. And so, and when you make those gases inside of a solid, it damages the solid. And so eventually, when you're talking about fuel rods in pressurized water reactors or in triso fuels, those solids start to crack. And when they crack, they become dangerous and unreliable. And so you tend to take them out and reprocess them before that happens. Yeah. In molten salt, you don't have that problem, right? The you you have a fluid, right? Now it's a it's a fluid running at about 900 degrees centigrade, so like wear gloves, but 
and it's and it's highly radioactive, but you can chemically separate it in it in that state. It's quite yeah. reactive, right? And fluorine salts. The nice thing about fluorine is that it holds on to anything. So whatever fissions out of the reaction, cesium and iodine becomes cesium fluoride and iodine fluoride. Molybdenum becomes mm. a molybdenum fluoride and so forth. And they can be chemically separated. So you not only break down all of the actinides, all of the transuranics that you're making in the process uh, into non-radioactives, you're making them into elements that you can reprocess and sell for other things. Uh yeah, molten salts yeah. have huge possibilities. They're a long way away, and and there's not a lot of development are, huh? in them. Because if you're concerned about making power today, um, I still really believe in the new scale approach. Sixty megawatt pressurized water is super well understood. It's a it can be made extremely safe. It can be manufactured at scale. Uh, you just have to mature. You still have the waste to deal with, though. You do, but you do you can reprocess that fuel, right? They, Cheaply. I mean, there's a big issue around. United States getting back into the fuel reprocessing business. You've been out. Mm. You've been out of it for fifty years. You need to get back into it. It's other parts of the world reprocess fuel. The U.S. could as well. Okay, that's exciting. Should we talk about fusion? Of course. <laughs> First of all, whatever happened to that Zcat crazy guy who had like a suitcase that size thing? That uh, yeah, funny. That never really amounted to anything, huh? Yeah, so, isn't that weird? So strange. Where did that guy go? Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> interesting reality. Um, and and yeah, we, you know, we actually did those four, three fusion shows, including uh, we did the the low energy nuclear reaction show. Right. And I made the point then, and it's still true today, which is there is seems to be some science behind those low energy reactions, and that's mm -hmm. what that crazy guy was talking about. But none of it seems to make power. And to be clear. No fusion has made power, right? <laughs> None of it. In, In other words, no. There have there has been fusion, but it requires more power than it than it puts creates. out. And and the yeah. way we measure that. Now, why is this? Why why are we having the problem? Because the only the you know we're trying to recreate a star without having a star's mass. Because having a star's mass, you know, you're going to pay extra for shipping for sure, right? Like it's <laughs> that's expensive. And so we simulate a star's mass with magnetic fields. Okay, yeah, right. Right? We superheat and some elements, typically uh, isotopes of hydrogen, to the point that they become plasmas. They blow all their electrons off. So they're highly ionized, which means I can manipulate them with magnetic fields. Now I try and build an intense enough magnetic field to keep that plasma away from all surfaces and, and potentially even use those fields to heat it further that those hydrogen atoms start to fuse into helium atoms in the middle of a lot of electricity or a lot of energy. They don't make electricity. They just make heat and you have to deal with that. So we talk about this energy gain factor or Q, right? That I'm going to put energy in and I want a Q that's greater than one. And we've never pulled this off. So the, the sort of most advanced known uh, working Fusion reactor is the joint European Taurus, the jet reactor in the UK. Um, it's old. It's, it was built in the 80s, operated in the 90s. You put um, you put about 24 megawatts of power into it, and you got 16 megawatts of heat back out of it. Now, this was a tokamak reactor. So this is like a donut wrapped in, in copper magnetic coils that were cooled with water. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the magnetic field that it generated, we measure magnetic fields in Teslas. It made a 3.4 Tesla field, which is a very, very powerful magnetic field. Like, don't wear any yeah. metal when you're near that thing. Right. Um, and its Q was 0.67, right? So you put in 24 megawatts of power, you got out 16. Mm -hmm. At the time, it was the breakthrough. That's over 20 years ago now. Right. Right. Uh, just in 2021, the National Ignition, uh, Ignition Facility, NIF, which is a very different style of doing fusion. That is, this is um, using lasers to, uh, it's always fun to use lasers to yeah, hit course. a halarum, a little, a little chamber simultaneously from 192 different directions. They actually hit a Q of 0.7, which is why they, that's why it was in the news and lots of people were talking about. And just remind us what that means, a Q of 0.7. So that that they got back 70% of the power they put in thermal. Okay. Although NIF did some crazy things with the way they computed that number. They didn't really account for all of the energy that went in, that took to charge the lasers in the first place. All of the losses that happened there. But those are one-time losses, aren't they? They're, no, they're, they're each time you fire it. You're going to charge it up. You're going to charge up your system. You're going to have some percentage of loss there. They measured the amount of power that actually came out as laser light versus the amount of thermal energy that was irradiated that was that came off when the fusion reaction happened, and they were at about seventy percent. Um, okay. Ider, yeah, which is this is the big reactor they've been working on. You know, started in the 1980s, still under construction. Um, their goal is to get to a Q of 10 or more. Okay. I, I would point out that a normal producing power plant runs at 20. Yeah. Right? For the amount of energy you put in to, op to, to operate it, you'll get 20 times that power back out so that you can deal with all the losses along the way. Mm. Now, the big difference between Eider and JET, you know, JET was the older reactor that was at 0.67. Eider is the first reactor they're building using superconductive coils. Right. So they're going to use now UBM tin magnets. And they're actually, you know, Eider's fairly far along these days. It's being, being well assembled. Now, now UBM tin superconductors are well known. They're cooled with liquid helium. This is what the Large Hadron Collider uses. Right. Where the jet uh, reactor had about 3.4 Tesla field coils, Eider's supposed to have 13 Tesla. Okay. So these much stronger magnets should be able to contain a more powerful plasma that maybe we can get up the energy level. And this is why they, building these larger and larger coils, building a larger and larger facility, which is why Eider is so stunningly expensive, mm. is uh, to get to a size large enough to be able to create enough field, this beta field, uh, sufficient to contain the plasma to get to these more positive numbers. Okay. Exciting. But it is exciting, but we're not there yet. I would point out that niobium tin superconductors are 30 years old. Mm -hmm. But even back in the in the in the 1980s, we started coming up with new superconductors. Rebco superconductors are rare earth barium uh uh oxides. The problem is but rare well uh, in rare earth the means thing about rare earths is they're not supply. actually rare. They're just unusual. Oh okay. All right. So they're they're readily available. We use them in everything. Uh, your phone's full of them. Uh right. that I know. Right? Yeah. So uh what was important about Rebco's is that they were quote-unquote high-temperature superconductors and that you would cool them with liquid nitrogen rather than liquid helium. Mm -hmm. The real problem with them is that they're ceramics, not metals. 
right? Now, obium tin is a metal. You you draw it into wire just like you draw copper into a wire. Hmm. It's not that tough to do. Where when you're dealing with Rebco's, it's a ceramic, and so it, it doesn't. It's not malleable. It's it, it doesn't pull into wire. Right. It's taken years and years to develop uh, methods to be able to put those ceramic substrates, those Rebco substrates, onto tape, film, essentially strips that mm. you can bend okay. and make coils from. And so there was a group at at MIT, just uh, you know, up the road from you. Yep. Uh, working with a company called Commonwealth Fusion. Nice. That has been assembling a Rebco-based uh, superconductive magnet coil for a tokamak. Wow. So their, their, their point is if you have a strong enough magnet, you just don't need to be that big. So the, 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 the CFS design is about 2% of the size of either, like 50 times smaller. Wow. Wow. Uh, what they did in 2021, like just to just get past this is like all theoretical, is they mm -hmm. built their first magnet. They built a two-scale first coil for their tokamak. Wow. So um, this is 267 kilometers of that Rebco tape wrapped into a coil about eight foot tall. Whoa. Then put into a container to keep the, the liquid nitrogen circulating around it. They powered it up in September of 2021. And really? they put out for their first test run a 20 Tesla field. And remind me what that is. So Jet was 3.4 Teslas, the water-cooled copper coils. Okay. Eider will be 13 Teslas using niobium tin superconductors cooled to liquid helium. At what Q? Well, we're not even at Q phase yet. We're talking about okay. strength of field. If I can make a stronger field, okay. I can contain more energy, I can raise my Q, right? Okay, yeah, all right, all right. And their point is... They're not trying to make a production power plant. They're trying to build a test case. Only they think they can build a test case for about a core $250 million, not $50 billion. Wow, that's exciting. Right? So they built their first coil. They got 20 Tesla out of it for far less power than any of the other systems out there. Those MIT people are pretty freaking smart. No kidding. And they, so they need 18 of those magnets. They built their first one and proved that it works. So now they've raised that's $250 great. million. Dollars. Their expectation is that they will also achieve a Q of 10, which may or may not be enough for a power plant, but it's certainly a demonstration of net positive fusion, but for a tremendously less money. And their expectation right. for the run date is 2025. Nice. Ooh, that's three years from now, man. That's just not that far away. And if something happens to it and it needs to be serviced, we could send in the robot dogs from <laughs> Boston Dynamics. Yeah, well, it's not that you know. Nice thing about fusion is really not that radioactive. Right, right. Um, their biggest problem, and they and I and I appreciate real scientists talking about this, is when you get this much energy into this small of a package, you have heat problems. And do you remember me reading the comment at the beginning of the show about the whole superconducting problem? Mm. Well, they said point blank, the biggest our biggest concern is a superconductive quench. So what about uh, putting it down in the cold, cold, icy ocean? Well, it's in liquid nitrogen already. It's pretty darn cold. The right. issue here is this. You're recreating a star inside of a donut. Yeah. On the outside of the donut. And so on the inside, it's going to be 10 million degrees centigrade, which is about what it takes for fusion. On the outside of the donut, it's going to be negative 260 degrees. 
that's a bit of a thermal gradient. Like wear yeah. a coat. Yeah. <laughs> like the temperature span, you know, you're over a space of a few feet from the plasma to the cooled coil is wow. astronomical. But yeah. there's been a lot of buzz around fusion making progress. And I've sifted through dozens and dozens of different projects. This is the only one that excites me. Okay. Because it's you it, what they're doing isn't it's voodoo. It's new materials that haven't been used in this form before. Right. They're actually dealing with the engineering problem. It has a very straightforward piece of science around it, a more mm. powerful magnetic field. Yeah. And and it's small. Practical size, right? Like the, yeah. it's a it's a what you'd really call a test reactor. I mean, Eider's the going to be the largest fusion reactor ever built by a long way, and it is still a test reactor. Yeah. How big would the production reactor be? Like it be you hit a point where it's just like not cost effective. And what right. Conwell Fusion and MIT have done with this spark reactor has gone the other way and said, "Hey, yeah. we can actually build a small one." I love it. That's good news, Mr. Campbell. It's progress. It really feels like progress. Uh, one last section, and we'll call it a day, and that is the advancements in power storage. Power storage, yes. Uh, we know that if you're going to generate DC current, you have to store it somehow. Well, the problem is this. Renew, the sun doesn't always shine. The wind doesn't always blow. Use it or lose it. Well, there's that. And and more or importantly, often you're making more of it when you don't need it. Right? Right. Sun, you know, they, California is generating a lot of solar power these days, but they generate most of it at noon when they don't need it. I saw something. I think I even brought this up the last time we talked about storage. I, I saw someone who was excited, a scientist who was excited about storing energy in me as methanol. I don't know how, but... Uh, well, because you can burn methanol to get the energy back out of it, right? And so... Right, but I mean, how much does it take to convert, you know, your, your solar energy, for example? Oh, there's, there's losses. But if you were going to lose the power anyway... Yeah. Right? So there's lots of different power storage approaches, right? You, mm. We immediately think batteries because that's what's hip right now. But right. for a long time, we've been doing hydro-pumped storage. You pump the water uphill to a big... Uh, reservoir, and then when you need mm. it, you let it flow back down and spin a turbine. That's brilliant. It, it's not <laughs> particularly efficient. You know, you're talking, you know, at best sixty to seventy percent efficient. But yeah. when the alternative was lose the power, yeah, it's at least power, and it's on demand when you need it. You just you let it go. I just love, you know, science is wonderful, right? I mean, yeah. it's the people that have imagination that bring forth these things, right? That yeah. somebody said. Hey, you know what? We're losing all this power. Why don't we run a pump and pump the water up and then just let it fall down when we want it? And somebody else said, brilliant. We'll do it. How did you think of that? The problem is you need a hill and you need a lake, right? Or, well, or you have a tower. Well, that's pump it up the water tower. Yeah, it's just you need it, the tank gets big. Um, there is a group that have been experimenting with building cranes that lift concrete blocks up and stack them. And then when you want the power, you grab the block and then let gravity pull it back down and spin a generator. Interesting. It's nutty. Uh, I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but I, I'm watching that. That's interesting. It's the, cool. The largest powered storage facility in the world is in Morocco, and it's a molten salt thermal storage plant. Now, I thought you said molten salt things were... 
not well working yet. Radioactive molten salts have problems. Okay. But molten salts have been used for power storage and utilization for a long time. So solar okay. thermal, where we take heliostats, mirrors, and aim them at a common point, allow us to heat up uh, lithium and, and sodium salts to hundreds of degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. And then you you uh, flash steam with that to spin turbines. Well, the cool thing about those salts is they're so hot that even when the sun's not shining, they stay hot for hours. Okay. So the newer power station in Morocco, which is built in 2018, can store 500 megawatts for seven hours, or more relevantly, in the dark yeah, of right. this heliostat plant. Overnight, for seven hours, mm. they're still generating 500 megawatts of electricity. That's brilliant. Right, it's it's one of the powers of molten salts. They they get so very hot and they and they and they don't instantly cool down. It runs for a long time. Yeah, but um, the move towards battery is absolutely a thing. Obviously, Tesla's been been doing a lot of work in this area. The largest battery packs that exist now are actually in the United States. Hmm. The Moss Landing facility in in California is about five acres. Uh, the the five acre main building has Tesla mega packs in it. Um, when you're talking about power storage, you talk about megawatt hours, basically how much power you have, megawatts, how much you can emit at any given time, so the yeah. maximum you can emit, and for how long, that number of hours, right? So in Moss Landing, they've got 1,200 megawatt hours at 300 megawatts for four hours. You follow the math on that? Mm -hmm. so I can put out 300 megawatts for four hours, so it's 1,200 megawatt hours. Yep. Um. That being said, in September, there was a fire in the building and the whole facility has been shut down oh. and they're trying to figure out what's going on there. So, you know, trouble. Ouch. Uh, the Lazar folks, the guys who do the levelized cost of energy, also have a section now on levelized cost of storage. So that's how, you know, it's finally hitting world standards about how mm. you store electricity, yeah. uh, energy available. And so you, you know, the... The lithium-ion battery packs that Tesla builds, these mega packs, they're really well-suited for what they consider short-term bursts of energy. Yeah. So up to about six hours, typically two or three. And so they're good replacements for gas peaker plants. So in that two hours where you need that extra power because everybody's come home and wanted to make dinner, sure. that's where these battery packs make a difference. Interesting. And it brings up an interesting reality when it comes to power generation, something that the grid's been dealing with for a long time. Before renewables really took off, when we were just mostly just burning dead uh, plants, right, coal mm -hmm. and, and the like to generate electricity, it was all about heated, boiling water and spinning turbines. Right. Well, when you shut those things off, when the boiler shuts off for whatever reason or something goes wrong, the turbine doesn't instantly stop. It spins down. Mm -hmm. You actually have a, a few minutes before the grid, before that plant, that turbine actually goes offline, it spins down enough that it's no longer usable power, and you you switch it out, and it gives flexibility to the grid to respond. If it was smart, well, it doesn't need to be smart. I mean, to talk about the uh, the inertia of the turbine means we have these few minutes to play, right? Um, and a lot of these new power systems, solar and the like, they just don't have that flexibility. They don't work the same way. Okay. And so one of the difficulties you're having with renewable energy is smoothing out the switching of sources. You don't have a stable, slowly spinning down turbine to switch away right. from. You have power that's going away quite quickly. And so these battery packs are becoming 
a crucial part of the grid for being able to switch between power sources reliably. Yeah. I uh, ran up against this problem in my house because I and I called you and we had a discussion about it. We have a uh, propane generator that kicks on after the power goes out. Let's say a storm power goes out and there's about, I don't know, five or six seconds before the generator comes online. And so I called my friend Richard Campbell and I said, hey, is there any battery backup powerful enough to handle that failover four seconds so that it's smooth? And the answer was? Well, yeah, if you want to spend enough money. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, out of my price range. Yeah, well, the, the, your normal inexpensive UPSs don't work well with generator, with, with those small generators. You need Probably because the, the, the of the spikes and all of that. It's not smooth. Well, you, right? What made the super efficient, well-priced UPSs the line, are line interactive. And so they actually try and modify the waveform to keep it stable. Yeah. And uh, that doesn't interact well with the generator. And so you tend to get harmonics depending on loading. If things are heavily loaded, it works differently than lightly loaded. And yeah. so the safety for that is double conversion uh, UPSs, which are bigger and more expensive, where they're converting the power into the battery and the battery is always putting out the power to the power source. And so they're tolerant to fluctuations in a much better way. They're less efficient and they cost more. So what I ended up doing was getting multiple UPSs for the critical things that I want to keep running during right. uh, those five seconds or whatever. So, you know, one for my computer, one for the internet connection, that kind of thing. Absolutely. One for the fridge. Let's talk uh, uh, a little more on Tesla here. You've heard the Tesla Powerwall. Yeah. And they're up to about 250,000 installs now. Uh, I'm interested in a couple. My old generator's just about, you know, done. I think I might yeah. switch over to this in the future. They're expensive. Um, they are household level. They're about uh, seven kilowatts for $10,000. So the idea is that you power them just like a like a car battery, right? As you're driving the car or as power is coming into your house, you're sending some of that power into the battery to keep it topped off. And then when the power goes out, boom, they just kick right on. Yeah, and then depending on how much power your house needs, depending on how it's wired, you might need one, two, or three of them. Um, yeah. And how much you're consuming is how long the battery is actually going to last. Right. Uh, Elon's real concept was if we were going to get into hourly power pricing, recognizing that power consumption fluctuates, like de and depending on where you live, you may be paying different rates at different times or for different reasons. You know, where I live, mm -hmm. you, they, you pay a low price for a certain amount of power consumed in a month. When you go over that, it goes to a higher price. But we don't right. have a day rate, an evening rate, or an hourly rate. Because hmm. where power walls would really shine is being able to take your house offline and use the battery during peak rates. So, you know, imagine at that six o'clock time, if power was actually being priced based on that peak consumption, right. so you could not consume then by being able to switch over to your power wall, right. you, would, you would save some money and reduce stress on the grid. Yeah. So power wall is not just for backup. It's for levelizing the grid by reducing peaks. That's nice. The problem is that these whole lithium, I mean, obviously Tesla's put all their energy into lithium ion battery packs. Yeah. Um, because of the cars. Yep. The battery packs that are going into the mega packs and power wall are not the same formulation as goes in the car. Cars need a lot of power in a very short amount of time. Yeah. And they don't have to last that long. You know, you typically can charge them every day or every other day, that kind of thing. But really the formulation for lithium ion, they're not well suited to power production more than six hours. Okay. It's just the nature of the chemistry of the lithium ion battery. It right. longer than that is not normal. You 
doesn't work that way. All right. And so there's been development on other battery designs, and there were some good breakthroughs in 2021 on this. And the one that interests me the most is the iron air battery. Interesting. Right. So the same way we have lithium ion battery or lithium air batteries, these are iron air batteries or storing electricity with rust. Oh. Because uh, you're oxidizing iron. Now, uh, this is not that far out an idea. Iron air batteries were developed by NASA uh, back in the 1960s. Hmm. Uh, it didn't fit their purposes uh, because they were a bit heavy because um, they're iron. But there's a company that was formed in 2017 by a guy named Matteo Giamarello, who is the former head of battery development at Tesla. Hmm. Uh, created a company called Form Energy. They've been uh, funded up to about $250 million from investors as of this year. Okay. And they have matured an iron air battery. Hmm. So uh, what's the difference with iron air? Instead of six-hour runtimes from lithium ion, you're talking 100-hour runtimes. Hmm. So days on batteries. Uh, cheaper than lithium. It's just the iron is way more abundant. It just costs less. Um, downsides, it's nowhere near as dense. So the amount of power per uh, in a given space is much lower. Right. But if we're talking grid, you, know, you want iron air batteries. These batteries we're talking about are grid power batteries. Yeah. I have solar and wind, and I need to bridge in the night. Uh, when it's not windier, it's not the sun's not shining with batteries. Space isn't that big of a deal. No, right? You don't. They're going to go in your basement. It doesn't have to fit in your car, your right? Yeah, you, you're talking. They're talking about one to three megawatts per acre. So yeah, you know, if you're talking about a gigawatt power plant, it's still going to be massive, hmm. but that's fine. But less expensive, lasts longer, substantially cheaper. So they are under construction now for their first test plant in Minnesota. Wow. Uh, expected to be online in 2023. So you're talking about using these for a plant, not for personal use. No. This is this is grid scale battery storage. Wow. So you bring you when you, as you start doing grid scale renewables, right? Huge numbers of, of wind turbines, offshore and onshore, mm -hmm. acres and acres of solar power. Mm -hmm. You and you now need base power, and right now most base power is being done either with old power plants that are going to be phased out. When you build new power plants, they'll tend to be um, natural gas combined cycle because it's inexpensive and it's base, right? Right. But it's still uh, carbon emitting. Yep. So we eliminate the carbon emission by using batteries, uh, but we need a different kind of battery, and that's this seems to be the most mature battery. It's not huh. the only one. There are zinc air batteries and aluminum air batteries in development. They are further away. Forms raised real money, has a real plant under construction, has batteries that actually work. Nice. Whether they can build them to scale and whether we truly understand the interactions of a megawatt of those batteries is one thing mm. to have a few batteries in front of you doing testing. It's another thing to have a couple of acres of batteries. Right. right? Just ask Tesla. You know, fires have been an issue. There was a, they did their system in, in Australia and Victoria, and it had uh, it had a fire that actually went well, uh, in the sense of you know no fire is good, but it was contained, it was repaired, things up and yeah. running again. This issue that happened on Moss Landing, you know, still not clear exactly what's happened. Hmm. So there are some maturations to be done with Iron Air, but I think it means hmm. significant progress in twenty twenty one and well worth talking about. Cool. One last thing, Hydrogen. I don't believe you. We're just going to do hydrogen. We'll, I'll, I'll go into the macro versus microgrid concepts later. We don't need to do that. Okay. But I would be remiss not to talk about hydrogen just because it's had a lot of press in the past couple of years. Yes, it has. Uh, the yeah, the EU has been big on hydrogen. Um, but it seemed a, like the idea of the hydrogen car has mostly 
gone away from popular culture. Well, like, you know, Toyota's still holding on to their Mira. Uh, electrical cars have been so successful. The battery-based car has been successful. It's hard to argue with it now. Right. But, uh, you know, there's a love affair with hydrogen. And there's a reason there's a love affair with hydrogen. It's uh, Hydrogen is a byproduct of the petrochemical industry. So, okay. Today, if you want to buy, you know, hydrogen doesn't hang around on its own. It combines with right. other things. So if you want to buy pure hydrogen, you, the primary production of, hy of hydrogen today, almost half, comes from natural gas. Okay. You do steam methane reform reformation uh, to break the, the methane into uh, carbon dioxide and, and hydrogen. So, so what do you do with the carbon dioxide? Uh, you let it off into the atmosphere, duh. <laughs> right. So the typical method of steam methane reformation, which is when we take natural gas and we make hydrogen from it, you'll put in about six megawatt hours of energy uh, to run that reaction, to split it apart. You'll get a ton of hydrogen out and about nine to 10 tons of carbon dioxide. Uh -huh. Now, uh, that's the cheapest way to do things right now. And it's the majority of, majority of hydrogen today produced. That's how it's done. There is a more environmentally uh, effective method called methane pyrolysis. Pyrolysis is a kind of uh, refractory. So what they, now what you're doing is you're heating up a molten metal catalyst and you're pumping the methane through that. Uh, uses similar amounts of power, about five megawatt hours per ton mm -hmm. of, uh, of methane to produce a ton of uh, hydrogen. What happens now is the carbon becomes a solid. Oh, well, that's interesting. So you're not making CO2, you're making pure carbon. And so you you can contain it and yeah. bury it if you want, like you can manage it. But it's also can be used as raw materials in other manufacturing, can it? Another thing, yeah, people need carbon. And so, yeah. you know, people pitch this idea of hydrogen as a green strategy, right? They talk about green hydrogen, which I've not mentioned green hydrogen yet. But now, so... There's gray hydrogen, which is environmentally damaging hydrogen. That's steam methane. They call methane pyrolysis the blue hydrogen method. Because you're still making carbon, but you're able to contain the carbon. Well, that's that solves that. I wouldn't say it solves it, but it's better. It helps. Now, the most people talk about, well, why aren't you just doing, uh, doing electrolysis? You know, like reverse osmosis kind of thing, or well, electrolysis where I put I, I put two probes into the tank of water. One gets bubbles of hydrogen. One gets bubbles of oxygen. You saw it in science class. The yep. hydrogen is fun because it goes bang. Da, da 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 da. Yeah, which does happen. There are plants to do that. It's only about four percent of hydrogen is made that way, and there's a reason because it takes more energy to make. Yeah, so yeah. six megawatt hours to make a, a ton of hydrogen with steam methane reformation. It's 39 megawatt hours of electricity to do to to make a ton of hydrogen with uh, electrolysis. So it's loss. It's a lossy. It's just a lot of energy you have to put in to make hydrogen. Uh, the byproduct, you know, you all for every ton of hydrogen, you also make eight tons of oxygen, mm -hmm. which apparently they just let go off in the atmosphere. Like where are the controls on that? Right. I'm being funny. Okay. Uh, at this point, in according to Lazar, there's about eight gigawatts of water electrolysis. I I, I got the joke, but um, I thought that you know letting go of oxygen is kind of not irresponsible for the environment, of course. But yeah, you wasteful. could use that in, in medical. Well, you, you put know? more energy into reducing it into a liquid, making it into a liquid. But there's more efficient ways to make liquid oxygen. Yeah, so they they don't tend to do it that way. Um, there is an interesting project in this area called the Dolphin Project. 
and it's uh, for using offshore wind power when we don't need it. Huh. So often, you know, sometimes the wind blows and we don't need the electricity and the batteries are full and we don't know what else to do with it. Yeah. And so the Dolphin project actually is a doing development with proton exchange membranes. Okay. You know them as fuel cells. Right. So if you remember fuel cells, you take hydrogen and oxygen, typically from the air, you combine them and it makes electricity. Mm. Well, it tells that you can build a fuel cell in reverse. Yeah. Where it, you can actually feed water and electricity into it and it'll spit out hydrogen and oxygen. Right. And so they want to do that on the floating platforms to store hydrogen as a form of cap power capture for excess wind power. Interesting. Yeah. Is it practical? It's an interesting idea, but it's like this is waste power anyway. So if you spend a little more money on it, maybe you can get some results from it. Yeah. One more new experimental approach to making hydrogen. Okay. Engineered algaes and microbes who outgas or have waste, that's hydrogen. So they're consuming other materials. Yeah. Right? Their food and their byproduct is hydrogen. I um a few years ago I did some research in algae and there's uh uh for biodiesel. Yes, yeah. biofuels that creates biofuel. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the whole point with biofuels, what's it about that is you're taking carbon that's already in the environment mm. and you're consuming it and making it back into fuel and then releasing it again. So it's in theory, it's a net zero carbon emission. Right. You take carbon that was already in the environment, you turn it back into fuel and put it back into the environment. It's not negative. And by the way, we're, we are geeky and we're techie and everything, but there is a method that has been around for thousands of years for turning carbon dioxide into oxygen. It's called photosynthesis. Yeah. Well, trees. Yeah. Well, trees good. Yeah. Also Stop cutting them down. <laughs> yeah, it helps. So, yeah, the, the bio aspects are interesting, but they're not that mature. So, yeah. green hydrogen is the electrolysis. It's very rare. Um, there's not a lot of it in the world. It's extremely expensive. Mm. And so it's part of the problem with hydrogen. But I, I, my concern is that the most of the excitement around hydrogen is that driven by the petroleum industry that wants to stay in business mm. and it's a product they can make that people yeah. seem to be happy with yeah it's just important when people talk about hydrogen to say a it's not a power plant it is an energy storage strategy yeah right, right. and uh where is it coming from because where it comes from matters yeah how is it produced hydrogen doesn't show up on its own it is with other things it has to be extracted well done sir thank you uh, yes even longer than the space show. I'm a little embarrassed. Well, you know, there's a lot of on. stuff to cover. Yeah. It's yeah. been a busy couple of years. It really has. Yeah. And uh, it's some exciting stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty happy. Uh, we are not doing enough to get to what the Paris Accords. We're, we're about sort of at half. Most of the time when I look at the numbers uh, for the, uh, the projections of production, we are well behind the curve. We are working on the right things, but we're mm -hmm. not doing near enough. We're putting on about 90 gigawatts of, of wind per year, and we need to be putting on 180. Yeah. It's those kinds of things, if we're going to actually make the goals of 2050. Hey, uh, I want to announce something here, um, and we can do this together, that Richard and I are going to experiment with a, a live platform called Bullhorn, bullhorn.fm. We are going to be uh, recording shows in a live scenario where you can listen on your phone and you can respond to poll questions. Um, you could ask a question 
Uh, and so it's kind of an exciting thing for us. There'll be more information coming in the next show. But uh, there you go. Awesome. Keep your eyes open for that. Well, Richard, thanks for another great geek out. And uh, we're going to have to do this uh, again next year. Probably. Probably. All right. Have a good one. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a...